Good morning. Uh, please take your Bibles and turn uh, with me to uh, the epistle of uh, Philemon that's between Titus and Hebrews. And while you're turning there, let me just say what a joy it is to be with you again. I love that every time I'm here, there's more faces I'm starting to recognize, and our family feels so welcome and at home when we're here. And we also thank you for loaning us Wayne for the morning. Our congregation is excited to have him, so we're very grateful for the fraternity that we have between our two churches. And I'm especially excited to also guest lecture during the adult Sunday school class. Thank you for the invitation from your inter- intern, Andrew Beckering, uh, to speak on uh, one of my hymns. Uh, besides preaching, my greatest passion is hymn writing and, and all things related to hymnody. So today I get to share with you both, uh, uh, both of my favorite uh, passions. That, that really excites me. Uh, but for now, we're looking at Philemon, One of my favorite uh, epistles, I have to admit, uh, just because it's so unique, it's so different. Uh, Certainly uh, Paul's shortest uh, letter, uh, a very personal letter. He's writing uh, to Philemon and, and to the church that meets at his house. So Philemon is the host of the church that gathers at Colossae. So, uh... When we talk about uh, the epistle of Colossians, the church that Paul is writing to at Colossae, it's the church that meets at Philemon's home. These two epistles go together, Um, but this uh, epistle also has a very uh, specific purpose. Really interesting purpose, really. Paul has, has one thing in mind. His, his main goal is to ensure uh, that this business with this character Onesimus is dealt with. Onesimus is a runaway slave from uh, Philemon's house, and somehow, we don't know all the details, he, he, he's found Paul, and this Gentile slave has become converted under Paul's ministry. He's become a Christian. He sought Paul for refuge, but now that he's a Christian, Paul wants to send him back to Philemon, not for refuge anymore, but now for reconciliation. That's the whole purpose of this letter. He's sending Onesimus back personally, and Onesimus has this letter in his hands. And in this letter, and what we're going to look at specifically this morning in verses 8 and following, are the three reasons that Paul gives for why Philemon should welcome a runaway slave back into fellowship in the Colossian church. That's what we're looking at, the three reasons Uh, the three arguments Paul makes for why there should be reconciliation. So let's keep that in mind as we read this letter in its entirety. This is the Word of God. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our Lord, or Timothy, our brother, excuse me, uh, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I've derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. 
accordingly. Though I am bold enough to, in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. And I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever." No longer as a bondservant, but much more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you now in the flesh and in the Lord. So, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all, or if he owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your own, of your owing me your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. And confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. And at the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so to Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. One of the most insightful guides to uh, life in the first century Greco-Roman world are the letters, the extant letters that we have from an individual known as Pliny the Younger. He was a well-to-do lawyer and author and a debater and magistrate, and his correspondences, uh, well over several hundred of them, have been preserved up to today. And as you look through the letters of Pliny, you find one uh, that shows us that the situation that Paul is dealing with here, uh, having this runaway slave, is not all that unique to this first century context. Listen to a letter from Pliny the Younger written to his friend and colleague uh, named Sabinianus. So he's writing to Sabinianus, and he says this. Tell me if this sounds familiar to you. Uh, The servant of yours with whom you said you were angry has been to me, flung himself in my feet and clung to me as if I were you. And he begged my help with many tears, though he left a good deal unsaid, but in short he convinced me of his genuine penitence. I believe he has reformed because he realizes he did wrong. You are angry, Sabinianus, I know, and I know too that your anger was deserved. But mercy wins most praise when there is just cause for anger. You love the man once, and I hope you'll love him again. But it is sufficient for the moment if you will allow yourself to be appeased. And listen to this line right here. You can always be angry again if he deserves it. And you will have more excuse if you are at one time placated. I've given this servant of yours a very severe scolding, and I warned him him firmly that I'll never make such a request again. 
This is because he deserved a fright, and it's not intended for your ears, for maybe I shall make another request and obtain it, as long as it is nothing unsuitable to ask and you to grant. I, I hope that on the surface you heard some similarities between this letter and uh, the letter in Philemon. Uh, For instance, Pliny has come into contact with a runaway slave who is seeking Pliny's help because he knows that he has offended his master so greatly and he just can't go back. He needs uh, somebody to stand in between him. He needs a mediator. He needs an advocate to, to go to bat for him. And so Pliny sends him back with this letter of recommendation to Sabinianus saying, look, I'm going to stand up for this for this servant of yours, just as Paul sends Onesimus back with this letter of recommendation. So they sound similar, but that's just on the surface. When you dig down at the heart of things, these letters couldn't be more opposite from one another. And what makes them so different? It's the gospel. It's the gospel. The gospel of of grace and peace, which Paul begins his letter with, look at verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's how he ends the letter, verse 25, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Paul recognizes that it is grace, nothing other than sheer grace from our God that can reconcile filthy wretched, unholy sinners to a holy God. He gives us grace and therefore we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is how Paul frames his letter. Grace at the beginning, grace at the end. And he's saying when you remember that this grace has brought us peace with God, how can it not also bring us peace with one another? This is very different than the way Pliny approaches things. his reasoning all has to do with, with power plays and, and, and scorekeeping. Did you notice that, right? He says, if you, you can forgive him this one time, but then you can always hang that over his head so that when he does something else wrong down the line, you can say, hey, I forgave you once, and I let you off the hook that time, but now I'm doubly angry that you've offended me the second time. Now, this is such the world's way of forgiveness, if we can call it that. It's all about keeping score so that you can get what you want when it's convenient for you. But we don't see any of that in Paul's letter. It's all about grace. It's all about peace. It's all about reconciliation. And he speaks this way, of course, because it is the language of those who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ. The Christian way is not going to be the culture's way. The the kind of forgiveness Uh, That we're called to will look strange. It will be very difficult at times. But it's what we're called to when we belong to Christ. And so as we look at this letter, uh, indeed, more than merely showing us how we are to forgive, this letter shows us how we've been forgiven. When we read this letter, it teaches us why God forgives us or how God can forgive us in Christ Jesus. And I want you to keep that in mind, that that's really the heart of this letter. It's teaching us how we can be forgiven. Keep that in mind as we look at the reasons that Paul gives for Philemon for why he should forgive Onesimus, for why he should welcome back Onesimus, for why there should be reconciliation at this church at Colossae. Paul gives three reasons. Three reasons. We're going to go through them uh, hopefully briefly here. Uh, The first thing that Paul appeals to 
Uh, you notice he's making an appeal, verse 9. You know, he says, well, verse 8, he says, I could command you to do this, but rather I'm going to appeal to you. What's the first appeal? The first appeal is the, is the new usefulness of Onesimus. That's the first thing. Onesimus is now useful. And Paul is making a very clever pun here because uh, Onesimus' name literally means profitable or useful. And, and, and so Paul is saying, and you see it there in verse 11, uh, that uh, this young man whose name means profitable was before unprofitable to you. Formerly he was useless to you, but now I am sending him back as one who lives up to his name, one who is now profitable, one who is now useful. So this is Paul's first argument. Onesimus is now useful. Now Philemon hears this and it probably doesn't make much sense. In fact, as we read it, it really doesn't make much logical or lexical sense either. Philemon is thinking, no, no Paul, you got it backwards. Uh, before he was useful to me, when he was my slave, when he was doing what I told him to do, he was useful for me when he was working in my home, when he was obeying my commands. Now he's useless to me. He's a thief uh, he, he's, he's a deserter. He, he, he has a penchant for running away. What possible use could I have of him now? You've got it all backwards, Paul. But of course, when Paul talks about being useful, he's, he's not speaking of the usefulness of Onesimus as a servant of Philemon, but as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he's not speaking of his usefulness as a household slave, but now the usefulness as a born-again Christian, as a gospel partner, Philemon, the letter of Philemon is all about, about gospel partnership. And now Paul's saying Onesimus is part of that. You see that in verse 16. Look at there, uh, look there with me. It says, receive him back no longer as a slave, but more than that, as a beloved brother. As a comrade in arms, as a fellow Christian. And then in verse 17, Paul says, if you consider me your partner, receive him the same way. In other words, he should be your partner now too. He now has something useful to bring to the ministry of God's kingdom as it meets in the Colossian church. Onesimus has now something worthwhile, something of infinite value even to add to the kingdom of God as it meets in Philemon's home each and every Sunday. Before, when he was unconverted, this was not the case. In that sense, he was useless. But of course, and listen to this, brothers and sisters, this is the good news of the gospel. The gospel has this wonderful way of take, taking useless sinners and reshaping them, reforming them, uh, uh, of transforming them, of refashioning them, and recommissioning them into the purpose of God, into God's service. That's what the gospel does. Takes that which was useless, makes it useful. Takes that which was dead and makes it alive. Matthew Henry says this, unholy persons are unprofitable for they answer not the great end of their being. 
And I hope all the kids here know what the great end of our being is. What's man's chief end? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Matthew Henry says, unholy persons are unprofitable because they don't answer that end of their being. Then he says, but what happy change conversion makes of evil good, of unprofitable, useful. What happy change conversion makes. Indeed, this is what Paul is getting at in verses 15 uh, through 16. Philemon had been filled with anger at the fact that a worker of his deserted him and, and left him in the lurch. And Paul doesn't deny that. Nowhere in this letter does he try to downplay uh, the offense of Onesimus. But, but Paul seeks to show Philemon the hidden hand of God in all of this. So in verses uh, 15 and 16, it's as if he's saying, well, maybe this is why he left you. Maybe this is why you were parted for a while so that he could come back to you now recommissioned, come back to you better than before, ready to serve in the mission of the church. Now he's a fellow brother in Christ. And so not only will this newly found faith transform the way Onesimus will serve his master, that is make him a better worker, uh, but it will also give him a desire to serve the church now, to seek her peace, to seek her purity, to seek her prosperity. And if that's the case, then why shouldn't Philemon and that congregation welcome Onesimus back with open arms? So there's the first argument Paul makes. You should take Onesimus back. You should forgive him because now he comes back with a a new usefulness. But he doesn't stop there. The second appeal Paul makes is to the fact that he has a personal attachment to Onesimus. A personal attachment to Onesimus. It seems, as we've said, that Onesimus came into contact with Paul while he's in prison, perhaps during his Roman imprisonment when he was in house arrest and had a lot of freedom to welcome guests and things like that. Uh, And it seems that Onesimus was converted under his ministry. Uh, You see that in verse 10. Paul uses family language to refer to this. He says, I appealed to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. In other words, Onesimus is Paul's child in the faith. And this formed an extremely deep bond between Paul and Onesimus. He says to Philemon uh, that it's even difficult for him to send him back. He loves him so much. Uh, he, he sees his giftedness for ministry. He'd prefer him to stay and, and help him do work, but he wants there to be reconciliation. So he says, you have to go back. It's as if Paul is saying, to Philemon, because I love this young man so dearly, because I think of him so highly, because I prayed for him to come to know Christ, because I've taught him the things of God, because I've worked alongside him, because of all of these things, when you receive him, you're really receiving a part of me, Paul says. You're really receiving a part of me. This is a compelling argument for Paul to make. Philemon knows Paul well, he regards him highly, no doubt, and here this man that he respects and admires is telling him to receive the runaway as he would be received. Now there's this intimate personal attachment between Paul and Onesimus that's going to play a crucial role role in how Onesimus is received by the Colossian church. And this is, I think, where we really see that this is Uh, A letter of recommendation, right? 
Isn't this what happens with letters of recommendation? Uh, say you're going in uh, for a job interview and, and your potential new boss reads uh, the letter of recommendation. What they're reading is, in a sense, it's this. It's somebody uh, of higher cloud, higher status, higher uh, um, sway, reputation, saying to your potential new boss, uh, forget what you know about this person. Uh, forget what you think you know about this person. All that matters is what I know about this person. All that matters is what I say about them. And so in a letter of recommendation, someone puts their, their name out on the line for you. They put their reputation on the line. And they, in effect, put themselves in the hot seat during the interview. And that's what Paul is doing here. He says, when you receive Onesimus, you're receiving a part of me. Verse 12, I'm sending my very own heart. Or verse 17, receive him as you would receive me. So in other words, when Philemon opens that, uh, the door to his home and he sees Onesimus there, he's not meant to see uh, the runaway standing there. Rather, he's meant to see Paul, the faithful servant of God. It's a great argument. It's a powerful argument. Paul doesn't stop there. There's a third reason, a third reason why Philemon should welcome Onesimus back. We see it in verses 18 through 19. And this third and final reason is Paul's promise to make restitution. Paul's promise to make restitution. What is restitution? Restitution is to make right a wrong, almost always in terms of uh, financial loss or property damage. Uh, so for an example, just off the top of my head, um, you know, let's say there were three siblings uh, playing kickball back in Hollidaysburg, Pennsylvania, uh, outside the public library at night. And uh, one of the balls goes soaring through and breaks uh, the library's window. Let's just say, I mean, for, you know, uh, for an illustration. Uh, if that happens, then the parents probably would tell these three kids, you need to go tomorrow first thing to the library, fess up to what you've done, and say, we're going to pull our allowances together, and we're going to make restitution, and we will pay for that broken window. I wouldn't know anything about that. But that's an example of restitution. And that's what Paul promises to do here. He assures Philemon that whatever, uh, whatever damage may have been done on account of Onesimus' uh, unannounced exit would be fixed on his dime. Uh, we don't know if Onesimus stole something. He probably did. But even if he didn't, uh, there's the fact that, that Philemon had financial loss because he lost one of his main workers and so Paul doesn't want Philemon's perceived loss to be any reason not to accept Onesimus back. Nor does he want him to welcome him back but then hang this debt over his head indefinitely. He says the debt will be paid. And it's not going to be by Onesimus. It's going to be by Paul. Look at the end of verse 18. I love these words. Charge it to my account. Don't you love when somebody says that about you? Uh, I remember last year, two years ago, I was at the Puritan Reformed Conference as they meet at the, the center there at Calvin. And, you know, as Puritan is one to do in Reformation Heritage books, they had all these wonderful books on sale. 
and I had my whole bundle there. But as I was uh, perusing about, I was uh, watching some people getting in line uh, to buy their books, and they were mostly young, young men, and I assumed probably uh, seminary students or wannabe seminary students. I mean, they had all these books that they were going to purchase. And as they're standing in line to check out, there was an older gentleman who's just off to the side of the cash register. And for each one of these young men, as the, as the total would come in, he would tap the person manning the cash register, and he would just give them a nod, and then they would tell the student, this gentleman is going to pay for all of your books. And you can imagine the, the, the expression of delight on these uh, young men's faces as they heard this. And it happened again and again. I stood back and I, and I watched a, one man, two men. It was like five or six guys. This guy, he, he said, charge it to my account. I was so blown away by his generosity. And now I'm thinking, why didn't I get in line? But, <laughs> but either way, I mean, you can imagine that that was no small thing for him to do. No small thing for him to do. Well, imagine what Paul is offering to do here. Imagine what money he's offering to put on the line to make restitution for Onesimus' damages. And look how seriously Paul takes this point. Do you see how serious he is about this? Look at verse 19. He says, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. He, he grabs the stylus. He grabs the stylus from his scribe. He says, no, I'm going to write this part. He says, Philemon, make no doubt about it. I sincerely mean this. The debt will be paid and won't be paid by Onesimus. I will pay it. There's this clever way Paul convinces Philemon to do so at the end of verse 19. He says, I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me your own self. And Paul is, we're starting to learn a little bit more about the relationship and the, the dynamic here. Paul is Referring to the fact that apparently Philemon owes him something. His very own self, his own soul. And what we learn here is that it seems that Philemon uh, was converted under Paul's ministry. Uh, what a debt to owe Paul. And so what Paul is saying is, you know, what Onesimus owes you is nothing compared to what you owe me. Because I brought you into the faith. But because I brought you into the faith, don't you trust me? You know how much I, I've done for you. You know how much I love you. So, so you can trust me when I say I will repay it. Well, I don't know about you, but it seems to me that Onesimus has a pretty good chance of receiving a, a warm welcome when he returns to the church at Colossae. And Paul makes a compelling argument for this young slave. He, he's laid out his inherent usefulness. He, he's... He's pleaded his personal attachment to, to Onesimus, and he's made the promise to, to make restitution for any losses that had been accrued. What reservations could Philemon possibly have? What reason could there be not to accept Onesimus after reading that glowing letter of recommendation? And I bet some of us are thinking, wow, I wish I had a friend like Paul who was willing to write me a letter like that. Well, guess what, brothers and sisters? You do have a friend like that. You have Jesus Christ. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul. And you have something even better than a, a letter of recommendation. You have his personal intercession. 
You know, it's not as though uh, he, he, he prints off a letter from one of his templates and has a secretary send it off in the mail. He has gone to sit down with the boss face to face and to talk about you. That's how good of a friend Jesus is. He's interceding for you. And friends, you need to recognize how important this, uh, this, this intercession is. Without it, we are lost because you and I, we are like Onesimus, we are runaways. Do you know that? You're the runaway. Like Onesimus, you have, you have left in, in search of a better life. Or like the prodigal son, uh, you have uh, followed uh, 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 the devices and the desires of your lustful heart. Or like Jonah, you've just turned and fled because you were terrified. Either way, we run away. Every time we sin, that's what sin is. We're running away from God. And once we realize we've done that, once we realize we've run away from an all-holy, all-powerful God, it's not so easy to go back, is it? That's why we need somebody to stand between us in this all-holy, all-powerful God. We need an advocate, 1 John chapter 2, 1, tells us that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's our defender. He's pleading on our behalf. And so we ask, okay, well, what is he pleading? What, what's he saying? What is, what, what is his intercession that he makes to the Father? Well, you read Philemon and you find out. This gives us a little insight into the intercession that the Lord Jesus Christ makes for us. He, he says the same things to his father. First, he, he pleads that you have an inherent usefulness now. Once this was not so. Once we were children of wrath. Once we were dead in our sins. We were following the prince of the power of the air. We were alienated and rebellious. But Christ has brought us near through his cross. And by his spirit, we're being renewed after his likeness. No more will we be conformed to the, the evils of this world. Now we're being conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ, changed from one degree of glory to the next. And now, because of that, we are useful. We are profitable. We've been bought with a price. And so now we have a place as the, the crowning achievement of Christ's new creation Remember what Matthew Henry says, what happy change conversion makes. And so now we are uh, equipped, each and every one of us, by the Holy Spirit with unique, distinct gifts that we can use for the church, that we're meant to use for the church to promote her peace and purity and prosperity. Brothers and sisters, don't ever, for one, for one moment, don't ever tell yourself that you have nothing of value to give in service to the kingdom, that you, that you aren't gifted, that you aren't useful. Don't ever think that because right now, at this moment, Jesus is pleading your very own usefulness to his Father. But he says something else. He talks about his personal attachment to you. Literally, you are his body. Uh, so he can say in a way that Paul could never mean that, that as he presents you to the Father, he really is he really is bringing his heart. We call this union with Christ, the doctrine of union with Christ. I hope when you hear the word doctrine, you don't doze off. Uh, this isn't some 
theologically abstract concept uh, that you should tune out for. Uh, union with Christ is the, it's the heartbeat of the Christian life. As John Calvin said, that, uh, that union with Christ is the highest degree of importance, or, or John Owen said that it was the measure of all spiritual enjoyments, or John Murray said that it is uh, the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. And if you want to know, if you want to have some, some understanding of what is union with Christ all about, how can I understand it briefly, then just look at Philemon 17 right there when he says, receive him as you would receive me. That's union language. This is what Jesus says to the Father. Receive this sinner as you would receive me, your perfect son, because we're united to him. Jesus says, receive them as you would receive me. That's his prayer this very moment, and his prayer is effectual. The son gets what he prays for. We are received as Christ would be received because we've been inseparably united to him through the Holy Spirit. And so just as Philemon would open the door and he wasn't meant to see uh, that runaway Onesimus, but rather the Apostle Paul, so too, when the Father looks on us, if we put our faith in Jesus Christ, he doesn't see us in our sin. He sees us in his Son. He doesn't see us as faithless sinners. He sees us as faithless or faithful sons, and he receives us as such. But thirdly and finally, Christ promises uh, to make restitution to the Father for the damage that you have done. Uh, let's be honest. Uh, you have done damage. Uh, more than stealing your boss's time, stealing your boss's property like Onesimus, even worse than breaking the public library's window. You've broken covenant. Broken covenant with the God who has who's formed you in his likeness. And because of our sin, in fact, we've, we've marred his property. We've, made, we've damaged his property, which is our very own selves, because we've been made in the image of God, and our sin has damaged that. And so, therefore, we owe him for damaged property. But Jesus, he steps in, and he says, charge it to my account. I will repay it. What beautiful words. What comforting words for Christians like you and me who owe such a great debt to know that somebody is stepping in and saying, I will, I will repay it. You know, Paul wrote those words in his own hand. Jesus wrote those words in his own blood. First Peter tells us that we were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from our forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You know, we can oftentimes feel like the damage we've done is too great, and therefore we shrink back in fear from approaching God. We feel that we have offended him too fiercely or we owe him too deeply that we could never be welcomed back in a loving embrace into his presence. But that, friends, that, that feeling is to doubt these words of Jesus Christ when he says, I will repay it. 
Dare we doubt the value of Christ's blood to repay all our sin and all our iniquity? Dare we call into question his credit score? Do you understand that there is enough righteous wealth in a single drop of the blood of Christ to pay for your sins, to pay for my sins, indeed to pay for the sins of the entire world? That's how infinitely precious his blood really is. That packed into just a single drop is enough righteousness to satisfy God's wrath, to pay our debt. And since he has paid the price, friends, that means there's no need for us to to toil fruitlessly, to try to satisfy the Father with our own works. We certainly don't need to try to win back his favor with the labors of our hands. Jesus paid it all. And we certainly, certainly don't need to enter his presence in fear. You understand that today? Well, there's a lot to be afraid of if you've not come to Jesus Christ in faith. Uh, there, there is nothing that will persuade the Father to welcome you back if you are not in the Son. You have no usefulness. You are not united to His Son. And no one has paid your debt. There's a lot to be afraid of if you do not know Christ. But friends, today, make today the day of salvation if you have not yet put your faith in Jesus Christ. And recognize that you have no reason to fear God's wrath has been satisfied. And with a a letter of recommendation like this, with a personal intercession like his, what could we be afraid of? But rather we we can say and we can sing with confidence, my God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child and I shall no longer fear. With confidence. I now draw nigh. With confidence, I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, cry. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for the reality of of the Christian message, that because Christ has been raised and because he is ascended, he is pleading for those He's pleading for us right now, those who will one day share in his resurrection and stand in your presence and will be able to do so without fear. Even though we recognize we are sinners, Lord, your word tells us who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God interceding for us right now at this very moment. We thank you for the intercession of our great high priest with what confidence we can leave this place today knowing that we are right with you. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your goodness to us in the gospel and we praise you in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Shall we sing in response to this good news? Would you stand with me and sing before the throne of God above?